Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hi, Omis. Registration is now open for our first back-in-person event since the pandemic. The 2022 I Believe Survivorship Seminar will take place this year in Nashville, Tennessee. Join Akira Sight along with Dr. David Reichstein, Tennessee Retina, top physicians and experts for two days of workshops and educational sessions chock full of info and tools to help you survive and thrive with an ocular melanoma diagnosis. Of course, we'll mix in a bit of Nashville-style fun along the way. For those attending in person, we hope to see you at our welcome reception the evening of October 13th, so please plan your travel accordingly. You can reserve your hotel room using the link provided at the time of registration, or you can book your own preferred nearby favorite hotel. If you're unable to attend in person during the registration, simply select attend from home as your option. If you plan to attend in person or online, please register as soon as possible using the link in the show notes or head to tinyurl.com slash I believe 2022. And that's I spelled E-Y-E. After you register, again, just be sure to finalize your travel plans and reserve your room at a hotel there or nearby. Please email contact at acureinsight.org with any registration questions. Share the news with your fellow Omis. We can't wait to finally see you again. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for being live. For those of you who are watching live, any of you catching the recording, like we appreciate you being here. Um, this will be recorded for the podcast. So thanks again for being here. And um, I'm just going to run through a quick couple of announcements before I introduce our guest. Um, so just to keep in mind, as we've already talked about lots of times, but I'm just going to reiterate it. Uh, we have a couple 5Ks coming up at the end of the year. And um, one of those is in Phoenix happening on September 24th. And you can register at the link in our bio, or if you go to lookingforacure.org, you can find the registration info for both of the 5Ks. First one is happening September 24th in Phoenix, and the second one is happening on November 5th in Texas. Both of these have a virtual option. Um, If you're in the state of Arizona or the state of Texas, you'd like to participate, or I mean, frankly, if you want to just participate from afar, we would love to have you participate um, virtually as well. You will get um, some of the fun little like like goodie bags and just uh, the t-shirt that goes with it, all of those fun things are things you can opt in for. So we hope you'll participate in looking for a cure um, in either Scottsdale or Texas. And uh, our next event that we have coming up, obviously, is October 14th and 15th. This is our I Believe seminar. This is happening in Nashville, Tennessee. So right smack dab in the middle of the States. For anyone who is traveling, we really hope to be able to see you. Uh, Make sure to get your tickets and to get your hotels in order, um, get your flights, all of those things um, situated. And we are super excited to see you guys soon. Uh, That is coming up really fast, it feels like. But, you know, it's only August, but it is in a couple months. So we'll see you guys soon. Um, Thank you again for being here if you're live. And just make sure to comment below. Let us know you're here. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to bring on Lindsay so that I can introduce her. 
Okay, so crazy story. I'm pretty sure if I... I don't know. I don't know specifically how you came into my social media feed, like, but we found each other personally first. Like, I don't know that you found a cure insight until I told you about it. Um, and so I just remember seeing Lindsay's stuff pop up in my newsfeed. And I was like, this person is like, she's a doula. And like, this is cool. Like I never had a doula when I had three kids, but like, I wish I had. And, and so I was just really fascinated with her work and, um, I don't remember timeline wise, if you found my account because of ocular melanoma, or if we just found each other just because we were following each other on social media. But nonetheless, <laughs> I did notice when she posted about her eye and she posted about eye surgery and how she had her eye enucleated. I was like, hold up, like what just <laughs> happened? Um, and so I reached out and was just like, okay, you just got diagnosed with ocular melanoma, like small world, me too been diagnosed. Um, so I reached out and just was talking to her and she is amazing. And she's here to tell us a little bit more about her story all the way from Minneapolis. She was diagnosed on May 18th in 2022. Um, so Lindsay, just take it away. Tell us a little bit about how your diagnosis came to be and, and feel free to introduce yourself as a person as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So my parents tried to get creative with my name. So it's actually pronounced Lindsay, but call me okay. Linz. Call me Linz. It's just Linz. easier that way. <laughs> Um, but yes, hi everybody. My name is Lindsay Brown. Uh, I'm tuning in from actually St. Paul today, but my family lives just outside of Minneapolis. Um, as Danae said, we came together. Honestly, I attribute it to the beauty, power, and magic of hashtags. Because I think what happened is since I hashtag ocular melanoma in that post on my public doula page, um, that's, I think, how it probably ended up in your feed, and and we got connected, and I'm so, so glad we did. Um, I feel like I know you, um, but this is really the first time we've had an opportunity to to chat face-to-face, uh, -face, virtually, obviously, but I'm very excited to be here and, and share my story. Um, ocular melanoma is such a weird diagnosis, uh, and anyone who's tuned in who has either been living with it or knows someone who's living with it, it's just something that's really hard to grasp. Um, and so I'm excited to, to share a little bit about my story. A little bit about me in general. I have an amazing husband. He's the best person I know. Uh, his name is Ryan. We have three kids. Uh, Lucy's almost 12. Her birthday's on Saturday. Uh, Vivian is almost five and Lewis is three and a half. And so they certainly keep us busy. Uh, I do have my doula business. Uh, it's something that I do as more of a, a passion project than a full-time job, but my full-time um, passion project, I'll call it, because it definitely is that, is I work in the sterile processing industry. And so some of what we'll talk about today is sort of what surgery meant to me um, as a sterile processing professional, a sterile processing advocate. Maybe some of you tuned in have never heard the terms sterile processing, and so I'm super excited at the opportunity to tell you what that is um, and how important it is in the, um, the idea, the concept, the process of safe surgery. Uh, I work for a company called Beyond Clean. Uh, we fight passionately. We, our hashtag is we fight dirty because uh, we want to add resources and education, um, everything that we can into the sterile processing industry to help patients like me and like potentially folks tuning in, um, help them be able to have surgery safely and understand all of the people uh, who play a really integral, integral role in safe surgery. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So like you said, I was diagnosed May 18th, so it hasn't been that long. Um, and following social media accounts like yours, Danae, has been really, really helpful 
and just knowing where to start in processing a diagnosis like this. Well, and it's um, such, I mean, social media, like you said, it's such a gift, like to be able to gift. connect in this way. It can, it can definitely be a time suck. I think we can all agree <laughs> right. on that. Um, right. And there can be, you know, we could argue the comparison game, but like, I think generally when used for the tool that it really can be, it can be such a connective place. Yep. I actually just had lunch last week with an ocular melanoma uh, survivor here in the Twin Cities. Um, Her name is Diane. And Diane, if you're tuning into this, uh, it's so great to be connected to you. But there's something really special about being connected. And regardless of if it's a disease diagnosis, if it's just any sort of interest in life, being connected with people who really understand um, what you're going through and have lived, you know, similar paths or walked down similar paths is really, it's really comforting when things get scary. Um, and it's really sort of educational uh, because there's an opportunity to learn from each other that I think isn't there with, with just a general, a general support system. It's a little bit different. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So walk us through, I mean, obviously your diagnosis was really recent, but what led to your diagnosis in the first place? Um, I mean, obviously you're really young, like you, you don't fit the mold, so to speak, for for the demographic we always hear about in the office of like, well, you know, ocular melanoma happens mostly if you're over the age of 50 and you're like a male with blue eyes. Like right. there's a demographic that we don't, you know, you don't fit. Um, I don't fit any of those. <laughs> yeah. Like you have brown eyes, like you yeah. are young, you obviously are female. Like there are so many different factors. Right. Right. Yeah. So as you can probably, you know, relate to this type of diagnosis was a complete surprise. Um, I had been, so I think it was Clay who in his interview said hindsight is 2020. Like you can look back now and really understand some of the symptoms you've been experiencing and understand now that what those symptoms were related to. Uh, But for about a year, and I honestly like did not attribute this to anything, but potentially a weird COVID aftermath thing. But I started seeing this sort of slow motion shooting star in my right eye. And it didn't matter if my eye was open, it didn't matter if my eye was closed, but it started right around the time that I had COVID last year. And so I just kind of wrote it off as like, you know, COVID does weird things. Maybe this is just part of it. Um, Shouldn't have done that. Lesson learned. But hindsight, you know, is is that 2020. Um, But then for the, since about April, um, I had been telling my husband, gosh, my eye just feels heavy. Like my muscles feel sore. My eye feels heavy. I had been having, you know, anything that goes weird or wrong with your eye, you, you cover up the, the one that's not having issues and you're like, okay, what's going on? Can I just blink it away? <laughs> Can I just, you know, blink more and clear, clear anything out and just make it better? But I've been experiencing double vision and that really like intense muscle fatigue in that eye. And then all of a sudden I started developing this, this shadow over my field of sight. Uh, And alongside that shadow is a bit of an aura. Um, I've had to deal with migraines for many, many years. So an aura is something I'm very familiar with when I do have migraines. Uh, And I was talking to my mom about it. And, you know, we thought maybe it was an ocular migraine because I know that's a thing. And so uh, my family and I went on family vacation in mid-May. And the day after we got back from vacation, um, I had an appointment to see my optometrist. I was like, okay, this shadow isn't going away. I need to figure out what's happening. And so I went to see my optometrist. Um, awesome, awesome guy. Um, anyone in, in Roseville or Minneapolis area, head over to Target Optical, see Dr. Moore. Um, but he 
he looked at me and he goes, gosh, your prescription is really different than it was the last time you were here. And so I started telling him about the the heaviness and the weird shadow and the the light. And so he, you know, did that that retinal imaging thing. Um, he was very kind about it. He's like, this is an additional charge, but I think it's worth it just based on your symptoms. And so we took um, an image of the retina and what the image looked like. And, you know, it looked to me what what he was describing too was a retinal detachment that was closing in on my macula. And so he thought, he said, this is a really, you know, serious thing. We'll see if we can get you into a retinal specialist. And it turned out two hours later, I was sitting, you know, in the room with a retinal specialist, uh, ophthalmologist, and uh, he was doing an ultrasound on my eye. <clears throat> What's interesting is I feel like things work out for a reason. That's just something, something that I've grown to know. And timing of things is just so interesting because there were, I don't know, 12 different locations I could have ended up at, but I ended up seeing Dr. Emerson, who happened to have been part of the ocular oncology department at, um, at um, Memorial Sloan Kettering on the East Coast. And so I think judging by my interaction, and again, that hindsight is 2020, judging by my interaction with him right off the bat, I think by the images, he knew something was, was not good. Um, and go ahead. No, I was just going to say this is this. It, it's just so interesting to me. Like I'm just listening to you and it's like deja vu, like family vacation yeah. day after got home, went to the doctor, saw the normal optometrist that I normally see. Then they sent me to a retina specialist. Like this is exactly <laughs> yeah. what, I mean, you know, like this is exactly mm-hmm. what I, I went through as well. Like it was the same kind of the same path to getting yeah. to diagnosis. Um, yeah. And it is, it is kind of crazy. Like, but it, I mean, I, I am glad it worked out to be a same day appointment. <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. And I'll never forget the moment where he was dictating the numbers that he was measuring from the ultrasound. And there's this one moment that it was just such, it felt like that pause was a year long before he said the number out loud to the, the person who was um, writing on the notes in the computer. And it was in that moment that I was like, what is happening? <laughs> And I looked at the screen and I looked at him and I was like, that big white spot is not supposed to be there, is it? And he was very, and I thanked him for this even day of, but he was very direct with me uh, about what it was. He's like, you have ocular melanoma, very rare, especially someone your age. Um, The prognosis isn't awesome. Um, And, you know, your tumor is large enough where radiation isn't going to be an option because it, it, the amount of radiation that it would take to kill this size tumor would essentially kill you. And so the only option is enucleation. And I didn't, I've never heard that word in my life. <laughs> like I didn't know what enucleation meant, but he was very quick to say, it'll be important to remove your entire eyeball. And I was there by myself at this moment. And um, he said, is there anyone that you want to call and come and I can retell all these things because my assumption is is that this is a lot to to absorb on your own in this moment. Um, so my husband and my three-year-old ended up coming um, and he told, you know, what he sees again, what the recommendations are. And he encouraged me um, to get a second opinion. He's like, I'm still going to move quickly and connect you with a surgeon and an, an oncologist, even if you want to get a second opinion. Like, I support that. If you want to do it, great. Um, but I don't want that to slow down what I think next steps are because I think they're very important that we move quickly. Um, and so I ended up not getting a second opinion. 
Um, because I, you know, Dina, you and I were talking about this before. It's like there's there's value in trusting your intuition. There's value in in trusting kind of the, a gut response to treatments or to you know whatever that might be. So I I was fully fully on board and frightened out of my mind <laughs> that that surgery was was in my near future. But when he said you know the next couple of weeks we need to get that eyeball taken out, it kind of hit me that oh wow this really is serious. Um, so that's, I, what's so funny. And I love that you do these interviews. It's not funny, but I love that there are such similarities between stories because that's comforting, um, to someone going through this. And it's also very motivational for people who are just learning about ocular melanoma that they, that they respect their eye health and their opportunities to get checkups. And yeah, no, for sure. Like just yeah. cause it's rare, doesn't mean I mean, you and I both know, and I think the majority of us, like nobody expects this diagnosis. You go in, you go in for an eye exam because your eye feels a little different or your prescription changes a little. And you're like, man, I need, I need new glasses. I need a new prescription. Like you never expect this. Um, but I do think that like just changing that narrative and if we can continue sharing enough stories and changing that narrative around eye health and the importance of annual eye exams, whether you have a history of problems or not, and not just to catch ocular melanoma, like there's so many other health issues that can be determined through an eye exam. And that the first time that something is seen is through an eye exam, like eye health is, is very critical, but it's, it's kind of not treated as such in the majority of the world. Um, most, I think most people just, it's kind of like, Oh, you know, my eyes are fine. Like my prescription is great. Like I can see like, therefore there are no problems. Like and I think it's it's just important to to treat it. I mean, it, it's a it's an organ. Our eyes are organs, and they have to be taken care of. They have to be monitored. Um, and the best people to do that are professionals <laughs> who can do who can do the imaging, who can do a dilated eye exam. Like all of those mm-hmm. things are are very important factors. And if you go your whole life, like, like the majority of people who listen outside of patients, obviously, the majority of people in the world who listen to something like this probably won't get diagnosed with ocular melanoma, but the six in a million people who do <laughs> that, that perspective, or like, you know, that, however it, it comes out in math, like those people, it matters for them. Like that they, if they get caught, um, in an eye exam sooner, if their if their tumor is caught sooner, then that's better for them. Like, and if they don't wait because they think, okay, well, you know, I shouldn't wait. Even if I have this weird imaging thing in my vision and I don't really think it's that big of a deal, like I shouldn't assume it's not a problem. I should just right. get it checked. And it goes back to that shooting, that slow motion shooting star that I've been dealing with for a year. My ophthalmologist said, you know, that's probably when your tumor got really bad. (laughs) And so had I gone, um, had I gone back then to get the imaging and and find the tumor, maybe, maybe a different type of treatment would have been an option at that point. And so it's just such an eye-opening experience to, to take your health seriously and not just wait till something gets really bad. Um, yeah, no, and, and it's, it is, I mean, it is tricky because I, I don't think, I don't think eye issues are, are, I mean, they're just not as common and, and I mean, outside of needing glasses, they're really just not as common. And so I think that it's, it's really easy to just assume like, well, it's probably just fine because chances are it probably is, but, but again, you know, that hindsight is twenty twenty, and and if we can just, if we can teach others to, to listen to that. Mm-hmm. and to check it regardless. 
Yeah. And just just pretend it could be the worst case scenario and go get checked anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's such an important thing. Yeah. Well, okay. So you had your eye enucleated and obviously like you, I know you've been fitted for your prosthetic now and that's been, you've shown, you've shown some really cool um, images and videos of that process and it's beautiful. Like you look amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Say. If anyone's wondering which eye is the prosthetic eye, it's this one. Um, and uh, it moves even. So it's a very, very realistic shout out to, to Tim Barrett in Woodbury, Minnesota. He's just an awesome ocularist. It's um, oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I hope it's, I hope it's reassuring to anyone considering or feeling like their only option is a nucleation, like just to see, see more of the story normalized as well. Like I think this used to be the standard of care. It was only a nucleation was an option. Radiation is now an option. Laser therapy is now an option. Proton beam therapy is now an option, depending on all the factors, but let's normalize maybe the most scary part of it is I think I think most of us at diagnosis, it's like, okay, but like, do I get to keep my eye like that, that gut feeling? I think it's a very human instinct to like, yeah. not want to lose a part of yourself right. um, in especially, any kind of a way. Yeah. Especially a part of yourself. That's so like you look in the mirror and you see your eyes and you look at well, other and people you see and with your see, eyes, you, you experience the world yeah. like yep. through your eyes. So like you never forget, it's not like you just right. lost the tip of your finger and you forget sometimes right. that like you lost the tip of your finger. Like <laughs> your eyeball is completely, I mean, it's completely rolled up in everything that you see and you experience in the world. Um, it's one of the five senses. Like it is one of the ways we experience the world. So it does change. Um, and that's, that's obviously a, a, an adjustment. Um, so before we talk a little bit about maybe that adjustment, but um, talk to me a little bit about like when you had the eye enucleated, I'm assuming that they were able to send it out for a biopsy. Um, when did you get those results in respect to your enucleation surgery and how did you, you know, kind of, how did that, how did that feel? How did that come across for you? Yeah. So diagnosis on May 18th, enucleation surgery exactly two weeks later on June 1st. And um, when I had met with my oncologist, we had talked a lot about what um, capsule biosciences does in terms of testing um, and biopsying the tumor. So my tumor was biopsied by capsule biosciences, and um, it was determined, I think I got the results like two weeks, two and a half weeks after my surgery, um, and it came back. And so here's the thing, here's the thing about, about rare disease. All of a sudden, you have to become you have to try to become an expert overnight um, and it's not possible. And so Googling ocular melanoma is a very scary thing. I will say that out loud. And I learned my lesson after my appointment when I was diagnosed. I Googled it while I was trying to put my daughter to bed. And that was the wrong move. <laughs> that was a night of tears. I it was sure. a night of absolute panic and tears and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm never going to see my kids graduate. Um, that's what that's what that did. And so all of a sudden you have to you have to learn all these things and learn these new terms. Like I didn't know what frame meant and I didn't know what when people say mets, I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know, you know, is it metastasis or metastasis? Like there's just different it's like different, a whole new vocabulary. It's a new vocabulary and it's super overwhelming. <laughs> and so it really is. so I did a little bit of research and you know, thankfully you reached out and I learned about the, uh, the I Believe podcast because I listened to so many episodes that just set me up for knowing what those biopsy results would mean and at least knowing what the numbers meant, what the positives and negatives meant, and at least having some sort of background before getting that information. And so I knew 
based on the research I had done and based on the fact that I didn't have a choice but to lose my eye necessarily, um, that my tumor was probably not in a low risk category. And, um, you know, you've talked about this on some of your episodes, the 1A, 1B, and 2 classifications, um, 2 being the highest risk for uh, metastasis. And so when my biopsy results came back as class 2, um, they did come back as prime negative. Um, and I'm, you know, slowly exploring what that means and the implications of prime negative versus prime positive. But just seeing two come back, knowing that that's what it will be, doesn't take away from the fact that it just like melts you when you actually do see it. Um, it's just, it makes everything so real. It makes everything that's already really scary, even more scary because it's confirmation that, yeah, it's bad. Like it's, it's, it's really, like, I suspected it was probably bad, but now like I have a concrete scientist telling me this is, this is not great. Like, and there's multiple layers to the reasons of why it's not great. Um, obviously, you know, we can, we can dwell on, I know my doctor's really good at, at focusing on just, just pointing out and mo many doctors, I think do this. Um, and I would imagine your doctor probably told you this too. Like, like Lindsay or, or Lindsay, Lindsay, you're not a Lynn. statistic. <laughs> right, you're not exactly. a statistic. Like yep. none of us are a statistic. We are individual people. Our lives are very individual our journeys are very individual. The cells that make up our bodies and that make up the tumors in our eyes are unique to each person. I don't think anyone has anything that would be considered duplicate, like unless you're like an identical twin, but like, I don't think I've heard of a case of ocular melanoma <laughs> and identical twins. Um, so That'd be wild. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of those things that it, it, but even knowing that, even, even having that as kind of the backdrop of like, I'm trying to sit here and dwell on this versus the information, knowing the severity that, you know, that the medical community treats that biopsy result with is it's a, it's a burden. Um, it's, it's a lot to carry sometimes. And, you know, it's something that I think has been really sort of empowering. And you and I mentioned this before, before we went live too, is just the, the idea of using social media as a form of processing. And I've certainly done that as well throughout the whole process, especially leading up to surgery. I've never had surgery before. Um, and I've been working in an industry trying to promote and encourage and motivate and advocate for the people behind the scenes in safe surgery, the sterile processing technicians who are cleaning and inspecting and sterilizing and storing surgical instruments so that when a surgeon can apply their expertise they have the necessary safe tools to do that. And so, you know, when I was when I was preparing for surgery, I only had that two-week window and I took to social media and created a video. And I'm happy to link it in the comments um, in the in the recording of this. But it's sort of an, an ode to sterile processing because I knew that it wasn't just my incredible superhuman surgeon who was going to nucleate my eye safely so I didn't walk out with a surgical site infection or healthcare associated infection. There's a lot of people who play a role in mitigating those things. Um, and a large, you know, a large part of my thought process went to sterile processing. Okay. Does that department have what they need um, to safely process instrumentation? And so that was just a really important part of my process since I've been living and breathing sterile processing in the past 11 years is, is really using this story as a way to say, hey, I'm now a patient and I now am putting my life in your hands. Thank you 
for making those hard decisions. Thank you for taking your time. Thank you for applying the knowledge and skill, you know, instead of, you know, complying with the request to just rush through things to get, get cases turned around. Just thank you for doing what you do and doing it well. And so that's been a really big part of my processing of all of this. No, I, and I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Like just, just to be able to make, make sense of something or, or even just to make sense because there's, there's so much uncertainty. There's so much unknown in this kind of a diagnosis and even leading up to the treatment, like you said, like the information. And I mean, it's been what, three or four months. And like, you haven't had a whole lot of time to digest everything and to, I mean, you're going to continue to learn um, for probably years because science is going to keep changing and like, there's going to be new developments. There's going to be new things to learn. But I think that just having, having something like this that you could focus on, um, as far as like something you're familiar with, something that you understand, and also like something that you advocate for in a medical setting. I mean, I, I would, I would venture to say it gave you a little bit of some sense of control, mm, um, yeah. of just feeling like, okay, I understand this process. I may not understand everything about my cancer diagnosis, but I do understand this process. And so I'm going to focus on that. And that's going to allow me to like prepare for the surgery and also accept how this will, how this will work, how this will look. Um, so, you know, talk to us a little bit about um, how this thought process evolved for you, like, and what what went into that. Um, we can take a few minutes to talk about that for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, anytime that someone tells you, I'm assuming, because this is my first time with this experience, but anytime someone says you need surgery, um, I don't know what an average individual or, or someone outside of the sterile processing industry, I don't know what their first thoughts are. Uh, I'd be curious. Um, to know what they are. But my first thoughts were, oh my gosh, how, who is preparing the instruments for my surgeon to use? Um, do they have the resources that they need to do it? Um, and so immediately I envisioned like the enucleation spoon and the evisceration spoon and the eye speculum and the graft muscle hook and the Steven scissors and all the different scissors that are used in that type of procedure. And I imagined if those scissors were dull or pitted or chipped and, you know, would I have muscle damage? Because of course I went right into YouTube and I Googled enucleation surgery so that I could see what was about to happen to me. Um, I was going to ask my surgeon to videotape it. I don't know if that's, that's something that, that surgeons would do, but I, I did ask her to take a picture of my eyeball once it was removed and she was able to do that and share that with me. So that was a, a really interesting thing. But now I look at that picture and I'm like, okay, I know what I know what instruments were used to make this happen. And I know what instruments were used to now make this happen. And essentially it looks like nothing happened, which is just wild. Like science and medicine are just wild to me, but I'm just, everything comes back to the idea of, of safe surgery and um, understanding all of the players. It's not just your surgeon. You can have the best surgeon in the world. And to me, my surgeon was the best in the world. Um, shout out to Dr. Jill Melliker. Uh, she's just a saint of a human. Um, but I know she had a team of people supporting her ability to operate on me safely. And um, that's not lost on me. Oh, I think that's amazing. And I think it's such it's such a critical um, or maybe maybe a sobering thing to think about, like that you know, when, when things happen in surgery, regardless of really what surgery it is, like, cause you, you have surgery to place markers for proton beam therapy. You have mm-hmm. surgery to place a plaque and to remove it. Um, all of these surgical things that happen 
are done, you know, obviously by someone who is an ocular surgeon, but there's, there's a whole team of people behind them who make that possible, who make that safe, who make that like, because like you said, like, you don't, you don't want a, a surgical infection. Like you don't want to have something that's going to affect your ability to have a prosthetic, um, in the future. Like, and so all of those people play a critical role, um, in really the best case scenario. Right. Um, obviously like there's healing and there's things that have to happen and your body plays a different role. But like, if you, if you have the most optimal <laughs> circumstances for that to happen, um, that seems like it would be exceptionally important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you better believe I wrote a thank you note to the sterile processing team at my surgery center. Uh, it's also wild. Like, you know, when you say you're getting your eyeball removed, usually people think big hospital setting, um, inpatient surgery, but I went home the same day. I was at the surgery center for four or five hours all when all is said and done and went home the same day to recover. And so it's just, it's just such a, a crazy um, opportunity to educate yourself and educate others. And, you know, one of the things that I think was really powerful was the opportunity to go through all of this, not only with, you know, with sterile processing professionals in mind, but also with my kids in mind uh, and trying to make it an educational experience for them. And, there's, there's nobody with more curious questions than kids. And Danae, I know you understand this. Our kids are similar in age. Um, but questions like, will you still be the same mommy with a new eye? Like, just like very sweet, very sincere, uh, earnest questions that just make the whole process. It makes you want to live the process in a way that's an example for them. Um, and I think that's been a really, really important part of of you know, working through all the twists and turns of this is just understanding that people are watching. My little people are watching. Um, and I want to show them that they can also do hard things, um, and be okay. Um, well, I think that's, that's, um, I think that's actually something that probably comes up and we don't have a ton of time to touch on it, but, um, I think that in general, like I was going to ask you, you know, how did your kids respond? And, and it sounds like your kids responded like most kids do with questions and just with wanting reassurance that like, okay, despite this change, like, are you still my mom? Like, because you know, at the end of the day, that, that seems like is the only thing that matters. (laughs) Like, okay, you're still my mom. You can't see out of that side, but you're still my mom. Okay. We're good. We're good. Um, Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think it's interesting too. Like, I think sometimes as parents, we can complicate like what our kids might ask and how to answer those questions. But like, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of assuming your five-year-old and your three-year-old probably didn't need the in-depth, like this is the kind of surgery that mommy had and this is how it happened. And this is all the, the instruments that were used. But at the end of the day, like mommy's okay. They just needed to know like, okay, your eyes are going to be different. It's going to look different for a while. And then, then it's going to have a new eye put in it that can't see, but it still looks the same as the old one. And then after that, everything is, you know, it's going to be as okay as it can be. Um, and so like, I think just, just realizing that, you know, those questions can feel really scary to confront, but the kids are so, they're so good at, I think just accepting, they just want an answer. Like they don't, they don't really care what the answer is. They just want an answer that makes sense from the cert, the source that they trust. Right. Um, and as a That's parent, a really like you, you are the source that they, t- they trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my kids still ask me like, like I have a really big cataract in one eye and, and they'll be like, mom, like, when is that white? Like, what's that white spot? I'm like, that's a cataract. Like, what is that? And, well, that's like a scar on your mm-hmm. eye. And like, is it, is it from the tumor? And like, kind of, but it's like not the tumor. It's like a different spot. Yeah. Um, like, but it's just simple answers. They just want an answer. They just, they're right. curious. Um, they just want to understand in the best yeah, way. They just want to understand. Yeah. 
And you're right. I, I love that you said you don't have to overcomplicate it to your kids. Like it can be very simple, like point blank questions. Like, mom, where do your, is, do your, is your eye still under that Band-Aid? Um, the, I had a big patch over my eye for four, four days. And, and I simply said, you know, no, but I'm going to get a new one to get done. Um, and that was okay. That was, that was enough for them um, to digest. So I think it's, it's sweet to have to process really scary things in very simple terms. And I think it's an opportunity to, to help everyone just be okay through the process, or at least be informed in the best way that they can understand. Okay, well, Lindsay, Linz, sorry, I'm like, <laughs> my brain is gonna take a while to catch Welcome that. Welcome to my life. <laughs> I know, my, my life is the same. Most people say, damn it, it's Danae. Oh. Um, at some point I just stopped correcting, yep. <laughs> but no, so, well, so Lynn, you're stuck with I mean, me as a friend. So I figured I'd, yes. I'd get it over with early. <laughs> it's okay. It's good. Um, well tell us, tell us about maybe just the top three things so far that you feel like you've learned in this experience that if you were talking to another patient that you would want to pass on to them, yeah. um, for like how to cope with this, how to like emotionally navigate this, um, anything that you feel like is really important. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good question. Number one, I just, I think gratitude is a big part of it. Understanding all the different, like regardless of what your, what your treatment plan looks like, understanding that there is a team of people involved and invested in your safety. Uh, and I think that that can be really comforting knowing that it's just, you're not, you're not putting your trust in just one person, but it's a team of people who've got your back. You know, um, so I think that's a really big takeaway for me. Um, secondly, I, I think it's really important that anyone living this, anyone supporting someone living this understands that it's okay. Bad days will happen. There are days where I just spiral. I've never considered myself an anxious person. I've never, you know, dealt with panic attacks in the past. In the past month, all those things are very new for me. And so I think it's important to understand that it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to, to live with. It's a lot to think about. And so having those bad days is, I think it's, uh, what I'm finding out is it's very normal and it's a very, very real part of the process in, you know, living with this type of diagnosis. Um, and then I think like finding ways to, to process that, whether it's journaling, whether it's, you know, Instagram stories, whether it's writing letters, whether it's, you know, recording videos on your YouTube channel, whatever way makes sense to you to help you understand what you're going through, but also help the people around you understand what you're going through. I think there's a ton of value in just, you know, educating people on where you're at and, and what you're living. Um, so that it, I think there's strength in knowledge. Um, and so maybe the next time someone has to get an enucleation procedure, they'll look back and remember this interview, for example, and, and you know, no well, more just feel, feel empowered going right. into their situation yep. um, with a little bit more information than maybe they had at the beginning when they were told like, Oh, you know, we, we need to enucleate. Like, what does that mean? Like, how does, how do I cope with that? Um, and, and I think too, like you, you mentioned like, like there's strength in knowledge. And I think also that there's strength in um, maybe a better phrase would be like that there's connection in mm -hmm. vulnerability and, and that there's a lot of power that comes from connecting with people who get it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like it, I think everyone deals with this in their own way, but I, I just do think that generally as human beings, we need connection. 
whether it's connection with the people in our direct lives who love us, like our, our, our direct family and friends, or connection with other people within this rare cancer community, um, I think having that connection, having that real person connection, A, it's scary, right? Because the reality is both you, me, anyone in the class two situation, really anyone, just really anyone, because anyone who, whether you're class one or class two, you could end up somewhere on the spectrum of of metastatic disease. And there really are no favorites in this kind of Mm -hmm. disease as far as everything goes. And, and it can be scary, I think, to put yourself out in that vulnerable place of like, okay, yes, I want to connect with these people. I want that support. But at the same time, having that support also means I have to accept that this can be scary. This can be triggering to have these kinds of friendships. And that doesn't make them that doesn't make them less valuable. I think it just, it just can, it just can be um, something that you have to learn to, to live with and to, to cope with because, because it is, it is hard. Like, especially if you're someone, I, I think it's hard all around. Like it's hard if you find out that you have metastasis and you're telling your friends and it's hard if you just find out that something changed with your eye and you're like, now I have to have it enucleated, something changed. Like, or now I have to have shots in my eye, something changed. Like just those kinds of shifts of seeing something change for someone else and being um, kind of on the audience side of that and just observing it happen to someone else and maybe it hasn't happened to you yet or maybe it never will happen to you. But I think that it, it brings up those what ifs. But I think to, to kind of wrap that up, like I think despite that, despite that maybe risky feeling of, that comes with vulnerability. I think, um, I think that those kinds of connections are so they're just irreplaceable. They're irreplaceable. I cannot talk today. (laughs) They're just irreplaceable. Like we can't replicate that. Mm -hmm. Um, and we can't, we can't create that for ourselves by ourselves. It's something that comes with other people. Um, so thank you. I think for just being part of that space and being mm -hmm. willing to to partake in that space. (laughs) The opportunity to give support, I think makes it easier to accept too um, in these groups. So, yeah. No, I love that. Well, Lynn, seriously, this has been such an incredible interview and I wish we could keep talking. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure we could continue to talk. So if you ever come up with another topic of something you want to talk about, like tell me, we can, okay. we can do another interview. Yeah. Um, for those of you who want to connect with Lynn's, she's on Facebook. She's also on Instagram and I will um, put her social media like pages that you can check in with her and follow her if you would like. Um, we'll put those in the show notes and eventually, but just as a final, before we say goodbye, um, I usually put people on the spot. So hopefully you know this, <laughs> um, do you have a favorite book or a favorite song, um, favorite podcast other than the, I believe podcast <laughs> that you would recommend just for anyone who wants to, to learn or to grow or just to listen to something uplifting? Yes. Yes. So two, so two things The I'm slowly, but surely working my way through an Adam Grant book called think again. Um, and I think it's a really powerful um, book about, you know, sort of how our mind operates, how we make decisions, how we how we traverse life from a from an emotional and mental perspective. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. In terms of music, today has been all about, and I'm just going to go with my my music choice for today. There's this band called Siren or Saren. It's S E R Y N or something like that. They're so uplifting. It's like happy music. It's like smooth and calm. And there are just moments where it's just like, oh gosh, I just feel good listening to this. So Saren, I think is how you pronounce it, but super good band. 
No, I love that. Okay. Well, (laughs) thank you so much. Thank you for chatting. I'm so glad we got to connect. Um, Thank you. Those of you who were able to tune in live um, for just supporting and for encouraging here. I feel like it's again, you know, just token to the community that we have here. So thank you again. And we're going to say goodbye. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences and produced by Agora Media. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.